Hi, my name is Loretta Sweet Jumite, and I'm Vice President of Drexel University, focusing on health and health equity. And I'm also a professor in the College of Nursing and Health Professions. I've been at Drexel for five years, and here I've been very excitedly doing some great stuff with the College of Nursing and with the university, and as well as with the community. Before I came to Drexel, I was a professor at the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing for 20 years. I was born and raised in West Philadelphia, so I'm so glad to be here to do the work that I'm doing right here at Drexel. As we deal with this crisis management issue around COVID, there's a lot of mistrust, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of anxiety, depression related to COVID. And people don't know what to do. When it first came out, it was a mess in terms of where we're gonna eat, where we're gonna eat sleep, think. There was a food shortage, which is food insecurity. There was issues around homelessness. It was about trash and isolation and miscommunication. And how do you manage all of that mess in the midst of the social injustice that's happening? So when we were dealing with COVID, then we get to deal with all of the stuff that was happening with Floyd in the knee on the neck syndrome and what was happening around the world in there and the protesting that was happening in the middle of COVID. And so here you have COVID, you have injustice, you have people who are trying to survive, you have students trying to get back to school, you have parents trying to be concerned, you have the neighborhood trying to say, what is going on? How do we deal with this crisis management? How do we pull it all together? It's listening, just listening, you know, and being there and building trust again and trying to get people to talk to you and just being that person that represents the university, represents the community that can help to rebuild um, what we had before COVID time. And so if we're dealing with anxiety, uncertainty, depression, pain, we gotta be able to deal with some of this stuff. And so as, as a leader, as a manager, as a person who is doing stuff in the West Philadelphia community, it's important that we be there for the community, that we provide the right information, that we go to their meetings and the community civic association meetings, that we stand tall and stand strong, but stand united with people. And that we kind of make sure that our voice is the right voice with the right information. Because when people are concerned about COVID testing and contact tracing, and you know that really brings up the whole mistrusting all over again when they think they get misinformation from everybody around them. Then we just got to slow down and get the right information and be the trusted venue that we really are at Drexel. At the community level, we are working very hard at Drexel to make sure that we work closely with our neighbors in the West Philadelphia area. One of the things that I did in West Philadelphia when I was working, began working at Drexel is did this initiative called we're here because we care, building healthy communities together. And the issue uh, we were trying to deal with was trying to hear the people's voices in the community to work with them to determine their health needs and then together partner with them to create new initiatives. I've talked to over 1,100 people in that initiative in the 10 neighborhoods to the Promise Zone of West Philadelphia. And we came up with seven health issues that were important to all 10 neighborhoods. And then I've shared that information with President Fry and we created there the Community Wellness Hub that's located in the Dornsife Center for Neighborhood Partnerships at 35th and Spring Garden. So we're dealing with all the issues that are impacting the community in West Philadelphia, and the Community Wellness Hub is right there for the people. And so that's how we are able to get our voices out. That's how we are connecting and making things happen, street by street, neighborhood by neighborhood, person by person, family by family, neighborhood by neighborhood, church by church, Barbershop by barbershop, you name it, we're trying to deal with it to reach the people that really need our help. So that's what we're doing here at Drexel to make a difference.
Today's episode also includes Jeff Stoll, the National Leader of Strategy for Life Sciences Branch at KPMG, and U.S. Navy Captain Dr. Charles Peters. All right, everybody. Thank you for joining us today for the Dragons Remember Oral History Podcast. Today, I have Jeff Stoll. Um, Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes, you are. Awesome. Jeff works as the National Leader of Strategy for the Life Sciences Branch at KPMG. And Jeff, before we get started with COVID, can you tell me a little bit about your relationship to Drexel? Uh, Sure. I earned my PhD from Drexel. Um, I guess I technically earned it in 2000 five or four, I can't remember exactly anymore. Uh, PhD was in medical psychology. So I specialized in the oncology side of the Nezu lab, um, who I worked with for about five years before in my PhD. Awesome. So what do you do at KPMG? So we, we know your title, but what do you do day to day? Sure. I lead up strategy consulting for KPMG. So meaning I provide strategy consulting services to the pharmaceutical industry, to equity investors, um, across um, the life science sector. So everything from pharma, to medical device, to pharma services, diagnostics, um, you, you name anything that's sort of in that world. Um, I provide varying types of growth strategy and, and deal strategy work for them. Fantastic. So do you, what everybody's wondering right now is stuff about vaccines. So do you have any information that the general public might not know about vaccines? Um, you know, when will it be ready? When will it be ready for the whole public to have? Um, yeah, we've done quite a bit of work on that space. Um, I'm not sure if it's, I'm not sure I have insights that are beyond what's publicly available. What I probably can speak to is um, what, there's so much mis- misinformation out there. I probably have a more accurate understanding of what's what's likely to transpire because we've spoken to all the experts. We've talked to industry leaders that are actually in charge of developing the vaccines. Uh, we've talked to the researchers that are running the clinical trials on these things. So um, I probably have a, a good consolidated summary of what's happening there. So in your best estimate, when do you think a vaccine will be produced? And then when do you think it'll be readily available? Yeah, I mean, so it's a, it's a probability question on some level, right? Because it's, you, you can't, you never have certainty with anything that's being driven by clinical trials and science. And so there, what I can say is there, given the regulatory environment has been very proactive in trying to enable efficient drug development and has created um, you know, flexible clinical trial strategies for ensuring drugs could come to market as quickly as possible. That as opposed to a typical vaccine development, which take multiple years, there's a good chance that one could be initially approved for emergency use by sort of November, maybe late October. Um, there's, a, there's a few candidates that are in line for, for achieving that. And then um, for broader use with a broader population though, um, would be probably later um, next year or late, later, not next year, but uh, let me say April to sort of somewhere between March and April, maybe May time period would be the broader population to get access to it. And that's assuming the phase three trials work out. So that's Moderna, that's the AZ um, vaccine, um, potentially even the Pfizer one would be the, the first three. Um, that would most likely be successful. Um, you know, and I think there's a higher probability that they'll be successful. If you look at this, the initial research that's come out, there's been some 
pretty good antibody development for people that um, were receiving the uh, the vaccines. And so, you know, between Moderna, AZ, and, and Pfizer with Biotechnia, I think those are the three that I would, you know, suggest are a, there's a good likelihood that they'll be coming to market. Well, that's great to hear. Um, so, when the vaccine is ready and available to the public, um, what what will happen? So we know it's not going to be a snap your fingers moment and everything's back to the way it was. Um, so mm-hmm. in your in your best guess, what do you think will happen then? Well, emergency use, if that happens um, in that sort of November, you know, November time period, maybe late October time period, um, but, you know, it's frontline workers that are going to be getting it. Right. And so hopefully um, their use of the product will show to be pretty safe um, and Inavailable, and we, you know there, there won't be any untoward effects that will prevent the the vaccine from reaching the broader population. Um, you know, I think that what's happening right now is there's a lot of scale manufacturing um, investments being made to ensure that's sort of in peril with the clinical trials, and so that should actually allow, assuming all that's functioning the way it's supposed to be, and you know being developed as quickly as it's supposed to be. That should allow us all to potentially have really broad adoption of the vaccine pretty quickly come that sort of April time period. Um, and I forgot one other player, Jane Jade, actually could hit that that April time period too. So those are those are the groups I would say are the seem to be the, the leading candidate for for sooner than later vaccine. So I guess from your experience, shifting more back towards uh, the public and our listeners. Um, you could give one piece of advice or if there is something you wish more people knew more about the virus, what would you say it would be? That's, that's a tough question. It's so variable. Um, you know, the one, the one public debate that I wish was, could, could happen in some way. And, and it probably, there probably is no feasible way to actually have a meaningful debate on this, but it, it's sort of my ideal. I wish it would happen is coat, Science got politicized during this in a major way. And it was, there are some aspects of science that already were, you know, think about global, things like global warming and stuff. But now we're talking about things that you can more immediately measure, like people dying or the inappropriate use of drugs that haven't yet been FDA approved. Um, you know, and it's somehow we need to get back to a world where there's more objectivity to science and the public appreciates what is required for that. So I wish there was a more of a public discourse on that. And, and I think more of a recognition that all the things you see on Facebook, sometimes those news posts might be objective, relatively objective, um, helpful pieces of information. Other times they're not. Like one of the major things right now that you're seeing cycle through the news is whether or not COVID has um, neurological impacts on people, right? Um, you know, I think people really jumped the gun on that quite quickly, just because you can use, you know, have a short-term period of not being able to smell doesn't mean you're, there's some systemic long-term neurological damage. And in fact, some of the research that's coming out of Harvard recently is beginning to prove that out. They show that with secondary cells that are being impacted and most likely it's, there aren't these longer-term neurological deficits, but what you're seeing with people that are showing those more profound neurological deficits, it's usually secondary to something that's cardiovascular driven. Um, so it's really underlying cardiovascular disease or something else that was pushed forward by COVID and then resulted in some sort of neurological deficit. Um, but it's not that COVID is infecting the neurons and, and causing some sort of degeneration or something like that. 
And, and I, these are really complicated concepts to have in a broad public discourse. But they're, you know, one of the things I guess I wish would occur is somehow to have the layman's discussion on those things a bit more. So people would just settle down and not, we have a lot of overreaction, I think, at times. Um, that's not to minimize the impact and threat of COVID and, and how it's certainly a massive you know, impact on our society. But the hysteria that sometimes kicks up on this as opposed to more of a level-headed response has been pretty interesting to see. Um, there are things, I mean, and, and this even goes with people I have conversations with at times who are PhDs and people who are really well-educated. And I think there's such a, an emotional component to this that it's hard to do that. And the news media and social media, you know, they just blast things out and kick things up. And sometimes there isn't a responsible level of thinking about whether this is something that should be pushed out. Um, you know, we need to get back to a time period at some level where, you know, we just take the, you know, hydroxychloroquine story. You know, that should have been more slowly rolled out. It shouldn't have been something that was sort of publicly approved. It needed to be FDA approved. Um, we need to get back to that. It's Friday in New York City. The subways are packed, the bars are open, the streets are busy, and the shows are on. A week ago, you might spend your Friday night out with friends, eating at a restaurant and enjoying the energy of the city. Yet, on this Friday, March 20th, 2020, life began to change for the millions of New Yorkers living in what had now become the epicenter of the pandemic within the United States, as Governor Andrew Cuomo announced a mandatory stay-at-home order for all non-essential businesses remain indoors to the greatest extent to protect physical and mental health. And today we're bringing it to 100% of the workforce uh, must stay home. And when I talk about the most drastic action we can take, this is the most drastic action we can take. New York City, once the bustling heart of the Northeast, brought to an abrupt silence as COVID-19 cases began to rise in March. By the end of the month, the state had recorded more than 43,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19 within the city alone. As COVID-related deaths mounted, life in the city ground to a halt. Feeling the strain of the pandemic, local and federal officials worked to alleviate the stress put on the city's hospitals by increasing medical services and bringing in first responders from around the country. Today, we'll hear from one of those first responders that was brought into the city to address the COVID outbreak, Navy Captain Dr. Charles Peters. A graduate of the Medical College of Pennsylvania, today known as Drexel Medicine, Dr. Peters graciously spoke with us to share his story and the experience he had serving on the front lines of the pandemic. Here is Dr. Peters. I was born and raised in Emmaus, Pennsylvania, which is uh, outside of Allentown, Pennsylvania, in a sort of semi-rural environment on a small farm. Um, I went to Emmaus High School, um, and then I... Uh, was interested in the medical field um, and went to um, Nuremberg College, which is here in Allentown, a private liberal arts uh, college. Um, I graduated from uh, Nuremberg College with a degree in biology and uh, went on to, at that time, was called the Medical College of Pennsylvania. So I was the last graduating class of the Medical College of Pennsylvania, graduating in 19. Uh, 98 with my medical degree. So I grew up in a uh, family of uh, medical professionals. Uh, 
my father is a practicing uh, internist, uh, and my mother was a cardiac nurse and eventually became a, a school nurse. So I grew up with medicine in my family. So I knew what it was like to be a physician. Um, I, would used to go, I used to go and make rounds with my father when I was in uh, junior high school and high school on holidays, on the weekends. So I kind of knew what medicine was like. I knew what I was getting into. Uh, it was uh, an interest of mine uh, and uh, I felt passionate about it. And that's why at a fairly early age, I felt that uh, that is a sort of a career calling. I actually enjoyed medical school. Medical school was fun. Medical school was tough. Medical school was a lot harder than, than college. Um, you know, uh, I lived across the street. Uh, so the campus is on Queen Lane uh, in East Falls section of Philadelphia. I lived across the street in a one bedroom apartment. Um, classes started at nine. They went through till about three o'clock in the afternoon, three or four with labs, came home, I studied from after dinner time, which is around 6.30, 7 o'clock. I remember I had a, um, a small apartment. I didn't have cable. I had a small little TV with rabbit ears. I got channels 3, 6, 10, 17, and 29, which all the people from Philadelphia know what those channels are. Uh, I come back from probably labs, get home. I'd make myself dinner. I'd watch the evening news on uh, channel 6. Uh, I watched the world news. I didn't have cable. At seven o'clock, I turned the TV off, uh, and I studied from seven o'clock until eleven o'clock at night. And I did that pretty much um, Monday through Friday. Friday nights, we did go out with friends, uh, and then Saturday and Sunday, depending upon if you had labs or you had anatomy class, you'd go into the actual school and go to your anatomy or your lab to look at slides or finish your dissection. And then maybe Saturday night we didn't study. And then Sunday night you studied and started all over again. And I did that for the first two years, which are your, your, um, your non-clinical years. Those are your, um, your didactic years where you actually sit in class. Now, medical school education has changed since I was there. I was there 94 to 98. So they're doing a lot more integration with more clinical stuff early on. But when I was at Medical College of Pennsylvania, the first and second years were all classroom work and some labs you know, microbiology lab, cell anatomy lab, uh, uh, growth anatomy lab, all those things where you'd have lectures in the morning and you have to go down to the lab in the afternoon and look at slides, histology slides, microbiology, um, and, or, or do your gross anatomy. Mm. It was a fun experience. I mean, um, would I do it again? Uh, I think being a doctor, yes. Knowing how hard medical school was, that'd be a tough decision to say, oh my God, I got to go through that all over again. Um, but while you're there and while you're doing it, it was actually a really, really fun and enjoyable experience. I'm, I'm glad I did it. While at medical school, Dr. Peters financed his education by serving simultaneously as a commissioned officer in the United States Navy. Trained as a cardiologist, Dr. Peters' career in the Navy included his deployment to Kuwait in support of Operation Enduring Freedom, Operation Iraqi Freedom, from 2006 to 2007. During his seventh-month deployment, Dr. Peters was assigned to Camp Arifjan to treat coalition forces and provide cardiac care while in theater. Having served 10 years active duty and 12 years in the reserves, today he continues to serve in the U.S. Navy. I currently serve as the senior medical executive for Expeditionary Medical Facility Bethesda, and basically we're a reserve uh, combat trauma hospital. Hmm. 
I basically am the senior medical officer. So I oversee, mentor, and responsible for the um, 50-some physicians that are attached to our unit. We're a role three trauma hospital, and our goal is to sit in theater and to take care of trauma patients, uh, typically combat trauma patients. Uh, we went through an operational readiness exercise in April of 2019, which put us the ready hospital, meaning we were ready to deploy should there be a need for either part of us or all of us, we were trained and ready to go in a combat trauma situation. It so happened that the COVID pandemic uh, came about and hit us. And because we were the operationally ready to go uh, unit that was administratively squared away, they asked us if we were able to take on this mission and sure, we were able to take on this mission. So we were uh, mobilized uh, fairly quickly to support the COVID relief effort. Initially, we didn't know where we were going. We were basically told, you're, being, you're put on alert and uh, we know you're gonna support the COVID relief effort. We actually don't know where you're gonna go. So basically it's standby to standby. So I got this, hey, Stand by, pack your sea bag. We're doing something. We don't know where we're going. And um, they, Javits New York Medical uh, Station was actually a non-COVID hospital. Initially, when it opened up, it was designed to relieve the hospital of New York City and take care of their non-COVID patients. Well, soon after opening up, it was realized that the need was to take care of COVID patients. So fairly quickly, it was approved for that to become a COVID positive hospital. And it was approved that the DOD, Department of Defense, medical personnel were authorized to help support that COVID mission. So we were notified that we indeed were going to New York City, to the Javits New York Medical Station to help that relief effort. So we were notified and within 48 hours of, of that notification, we were en route to uh, Fort Dix, uh, New Jersey for in-processing, and then later on movement within a short period of time actually to New York City to support the COVID relief effort. Um, I was assigned as the senior medical executive of the unit. The entire unit got mobilized. In fact, this is the first time that we know that an entire Navy Reserve unit has been called up within within the last 10 plus years as an entire unit to support this kind of mission. Mm. Once again, we, we are designed as a combat trauma hospital. We're designed to get called up for trauma missions, or com combat missions. This humanitarian mission was a whole new animal for us. So we were uh, sort of learning as we were going on how to take our combat trauma hospital and convert it into a humanitarian mission, which actually was pretty exciting because uh, we were actually um, developing procedures uh, and processes that no one really had written. We were, we were sort of, as, as we were going there, and as we were, we were at Javits, we were, as they say, we were uh, building the airplane as, you know, we were flying it. Um, so we were um, mobilized. We went to the Javits New York Medical Station where we integrated uh, with uh, multiple agencies. So we were integrated with the United States Army, the United States Air Force, and other non-Department of Defense assets. So New York um, 
Department of Health, United States uh, Public Health Service, uh, New York City of Emergency Management, uh, FEMA. So it was a true, not just uh, multi-service, but multi-agency um, uh, task force uh, that actually ran this hospital. So the hospital was actually run extremely well. We, uh, it was put together very well. So initially, the, it's a, it was a 3,000 bed facility. Um, but that was designed as a 3,000 bed facility for pretty much non-medical care. It was almost like a shelter. Um, when it was realized that we were actually going to take care of COVID positive patients, the realization that a 500 bed facility was probably the ideal size that we could staff and provide support for. Um, we had a robust amount of personal protective equipment. We had a robust amount of ventilator support. Um, and all of this stuff came from the Department of Defense and from the United States Army that brought their ventilators with them. Um, and we had a robust supply chain of personal protective equipment. So that was never, never an issue. Um, the conditions in the hospital were outstanding. Uh, the patients actually commented how nice it was. Everybody had their own room, cubicle. They had a bed, they had a chair, they had a lamp. Um, they had, you know, three meals a day. Um, it was actually fairly, really good conditions, it actually, mm -hmm. in our facility. Mm -hmm. We really weren't a hospital as much as we were a medical station. Um, we, were, we were designed to help support the New York City hospitals uh, in their effort. Our, our goal was to uh, find a way to help um, take the pressure off of their system. And the best way that we could take the pressure off of their system was to help um, transfer patients to our facility that were less acute. These were patients that were unable to go home either due to the requirements for home oxygen or there was concern that they had multi-generations living in the house in the, in the, and they didn't want to you know, bring a COVID positive patient into the house, but they had no place to go. So we provided the ability to take these patients away from the New York City hospitals. We provided the care that they needed, sort of the, you know, mo low to moderate intensity care that they needed so that they can focus on taking care of those critically ill patients, um, both with bed availability and staff support. On numerous occasions, uh, speaking with hospital administrators from the hospitals where we took patients, they were extremely thankful that we were able to decant those patients from those facilities so they could actually truly focus on those patients that were sick and needed critical care, intensive, intensive critical care. Um, we, we had an ICU, but our ICU was primarily there for uh, those patients in our facility that needed um, that sort of uh, their condition worsened and they needed more intensive care prior to being transferred to a facility with higher level of care than this. Um, in the end, the hospital was open for about, um, about a month um, and we took care of 1,095 patients. The maximum census we had was 455 patients in one day. Um, and uh, we did an awesome job and 
honestly, it was a great experience. You know, we went in not knowing what to expect. Um, we didn't know what kind of conditions to expect. We didn't know what kind of facility was there. We didn't know anything. Um, like I said, we were a combat trauma hospital with surgeons and general surgeons and trauma surgeons, orthopedic surgeons, and, and we're being plugged into a humanitarian mission. Mm. That senior medical executive, my job was to sort of oversee um, all the uh, medical aspects or the providers for my unit. So I had 67 providers, both physicians, uh, nurse practitioners, uh, certified nurse anesthetists, physician's assistants, and I had an oral surgeon. And we are, our job was to integrate with the army that was there to provide a true multi-service uh, support for them. So it, it, was, it, was an, it was an awesome experience. Um, and I'm glad we did it. And I'm glad we were able to help the citizens of uh, uh, New York City. Uh, they truly needed our help. Uh, and we, we, meaning the Navy, the Army, the Air Force, Department of Defense, uh, were, were able to come in and sort of uh, quickly change from being trauma-related and combat-related to being humanitarian-related. You know, the Navy does provide humanitarian support, um, not only with their hospital ships that travel the world providing humanitarian missions, uh, but this was truly a different entity. We're providing um, fairly robust humanitarian support uh, within the United States. Um, and, and the key is, is that prior to this, we really didn't train for humanitarian missions. We did do some humanitarian missions as some of our um, uh, exercises, but our, our major focus was on combat trauma. So this was a change for us. And I'm very proud of all of the providers that I worked with and um, uh, supervised and how well they integrated with the other uh, agencies and how they stood up to the challenge and sort of stepped out of their comfort zone and maybe what, you know, orthopedic surgeon is comfortable doing orthopedic surgery. They might not be comfortable taking care of COVID patients, but they stepped up to the challenge. They stepped out of their box and uh, they were able to, uh, we were able as a team to um, provide the support and the care that New York City and this, the, the New York City hospitals needed and the citizens of New York needed. So it was an honor and, and a privilege to be able to do that. Uh, I look back at that as a highlight of my career even though we were only there for uh, six weeks, um, it, it was a very rewarding experience. And I'll always take that memory with me. And I made some long lasting friendships in that short period of time. I learned a lot. But not only was I the senior medical executive for my unit uh, and supervising the providers of my unit and their integration with the other agencies, I also served as one of the assistant chief medical officers for the Jevis New York Medical Station. So the hospital was run by the New York uh, State Department of Health and with input from the senior medical leaders of each branch. So from the United States Public Health Service, from the uh, Army and from the Navy, and we sat all at the table as uh, chief medical officers to help make decisions to find out what was the best way to run this sort of unique animal, which had never been done before. And we created a blueprint for the future so that if this is needed again, they have some ability to look back and say, this is what they did right, this is what they learned, so that they can move forward and do this again in the future if needed. And I hope we don't have to do it for the future, but it's available in case we do. The views expressed in this podcast are solely my own 
and they are not the official views of the Department of Defense, Department of the Navy, Bureau of Medicine, Surgery, and Navy Reserve Medicine.